This is Africa Digest. This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Good evening and welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That is on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. It's www.channelafrica.co.za online and this hour you will not find us on 802 on the dstv audio bouquet we will be there after 1900 hours central african time joala netulo has your news with Matebula has your uh, your economics and mozibudi makura has your sports get off stories scores of foreign nationals seek refuge following violent demonstrations in Mahikeng. South African lobby group Afri forum intends to privately prosecute eff leader julius malema Zimbabwe's government has started rehiring nurses after it sacked more than 10,000. And in sports, Springbok captain suffers a fresh injury blow. But first, the news with Joala Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Scores of foreign nationals in South Africa's northwest province capital, Mahikeng, and surrounding areas have gathered at the local police station seeking for refuge. Scores of both local and foreign national shops have been looted as violent protests continue to spread in the province. In the Danville suburb, residents petrol bombed a police yala. Government offices, including all shopping malls and other businesses, are closed. At Judent 9, residents outnumbered police and looted more shops. These are some of the foreign national shop owners. Yeah, all people is beat me and then took it money and all take it is stuck. I'm giving safe side. South Africa's opposition EFF chief whip and the party's deputy leader, Floyd Shibambu, has described civil rights group Afroforum's bid to pursue private prosecution against the leader, Julius Malema, as a nonsensical attempt to stop the political voice of the EFF. Afroforum announced earlier that it will reopen the fraud and corruption charges against Malema, which were dropped in 2011. Shibambu elaborates. Well, the EFF is of the view that the private prosecution by Afroforum is a nonsensical attempt to suppress the political views of the EFF. Afroforum is known to be opposing the land expropriation without compensation strike that is being led by the EFF, and they are now resorting to using our courts, our laws, to try to suppress a political strike. And we're going to expose them for who they are. We're going to illustrate the whole of South Africa that there is no pursuit of rule of law here. It is just a nonsensical uh, attempt to try to stop the voice of the economy freedom fighter. The United Nations in Malawi has reaffirmed its stand against the death penalty in all circumstances. This follows a spate of attacks, abductions and killings as uh, of people with albinism. Just recently, over 12 people have been arrested, including a police officer and a Catholic priest, for the death of 22-year-old MacDonald Masambuka. George Mhango has the details. 
There is debate in Malawi on whether the government should introduce the death penalty in the wake of attacks and abductions against people with albinism. A study by the Parego Advisory Service Institute and the Cornell Law School has found that 94% of traditional leaders are also against capital punishment. Minister of Information Nicholas Dawusi has said the government is failing to enforce capital punishment in cases of murder of persons with albinism because of conditions donors attached to aid, which include discouraging death sentence. Human rights advisor Neil Gilmore said during the launch of the study in the administrative capital Ilongwe that the global body had welcomed Malawi's decision to establish a moratorium on executions with a view to abolish the death penalty. Guinea-Bissau's parliament has met for the first time in nearly two years after the appointment of a consensus prime minister to end a dragging political crisis. The West African country has been in the grip of a power struggle since August 2015 when President Jose Mario Vaz sacked his then prime minister Domingo Simos Pereira. Uh, Vaz has since nominated several prime ministers, but he has failed to gain the support of political parties. Gomes is expected to lead the country until legislative elections in November. The special session of Parliament is due to debate, among other things, the extension of its own mandate, which expires on April 23rd until the election. And finally, Swaziland's King Mswati III has urged the young people of Swaziland to focus on education to equip themselves with the necessary skills in preparing the country's vision of 2022. King Mswati III was addressing thousands during the 50-50 celebration at the Mavuso Trade Center in Manzini. The king says he's confident that the country will realize will reali- the set target of becoming a first world country, according to the king, the peace and harmony that prevails in the country will ensure that the vision becomes a reality. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. You can be a part of our conversation by tweeting us. We are on Channel Africa 1. That is Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. Now, South African lobby group Afri Forum has announced that it intends to privately prosecute economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema on charges of fraud and corruption. The announcement was made by Afri Forum's private prosecution the so-called pitbull himself, advocate Echerinel, who resigned from the National Prosecuting Authority to join the group. The group's legal team previously threatened legal action against the EFF and its leader after he allegedly made racist remarks at a political gathering in March. Malema has been at the forefront of expropriation of land without compensation in the Southern African nation. More from political and policy specialist at the University of Northwest School of Business and and governance of the offender. It's a very interesting move, and I've seen Malema's response already, which is kind of typical of Julius Malema. But I think we should take note of three or four things. The first thing is there was a case against Malema. That case wasn't only in court, which the National Prosecuting Agency botched up in Polokwane years ago, 
But based on the same case, um, there was also a case between SARS and Malema, so that even gives credence to that case. And then thirdly, the, the, the AFRI Forum, whether you like it or not, has got a very, very good report in the courts. I mean, if it wasn't for them, Brian Mulefe would not have been in trouble. And there are several other things. So they've got a very, very efficient court team. And uh, I would be a little concerned if I'm Mulema on this one. Now, is the timing of this announcement not perhaps going to be misinterpreted with uh, Malema's stance on the land issue? Well, I, I think that's the one issue that we can't get away of. It's political. It doesn't matter what AFI Forum says. It is political. In other words, once you are in the media for the wrong reasons, and I think there are two things that irritate AFI Forum, if I have to interpret their ideological position, the one, of course, is being a lobby group with a strong white Afrikaner constituency. In other words, the whole issue around the racial slurs and all these kind of things between them and Malema is an old story. And I think the whole issue of land must be um, a good story. But that's the risks that you take when you embark on these kind of issues like Malema does. Then on a very interesting point, I think in government's current drive against corruption and the ending of corruption, I think they would have loved to do the same to Malema in some way or another, but they just cannot. I don't think they can politically afford to do something like this. So I think in a sense, every forum is doing it for the government. Not that they've agreed to or not that they have even spoken to each other, but sometimes you get these lobby groups or interest groups that takes on an issue that you secretly tell yourself, well, I hope they succeed. Now, do you think uh, this whole procedure might uh, create a sort of racial tensions in the country, especially considering that, yes, Malema has been at the forefront of the land expropriation conversation? No doubt about that. And I think Afi Forum should have considered this. It is going to create more polarization, but then again, they're going to take it to court. And I think the courts are quite good in handling these kind of high-pressure stuff. Remember previously they took Malema to court for the racial slur about one bullet, one farmer or something like that. There was that song that mm-hmm. they took mm-hmm. to court. Now, in the end, they won the court case, but I think they lost the public opinion. This is our Afri Forum. And uh, Malema got a huge uh, free publication kind of uh, exposure all the time. Now, this time again, I think the same scenario will play itself out. Malema will play the media um, because he is a media darling. Whatever he says is good news, which I sometimes have a problem with. Mm -hmm. um, That uh, The media carries whatever he says without a critical stance. That is also necessary. Um, But I think they must have strategized and realized that this is the outcome. It will bring about some polarization, and the, the, the consequence of what every forum is doing, it now paints with a big, broad brush, and it's going to, I can just hear Malema saying, it's whites in general, it's Afrikaners in general that is going to do this. Well, every forum only represents a very small minority, mm. but that's what happens with these kind of things. 
The offender is a political and policy specialist at Northwest University's School of Business and Governance. The United Nations in Malawi has reaffirmed its stand against the death penalty in all circumstances. This follows a space of attacks, abductions and killings as one or as of people rather with albinism. Just recently, some 12 people, including a police officer and a Catholic priest, were arrested for the death of a 22-year-old MacDonald Masambuka. George Mohango has the details. A curious little bird peeps through a classroom window as Form 3 students sit their end-of-term exams. But for most of this term here in Wajir High School, hardly any teaching has taken place and the noises in the distance are other students lazing about on the yard. The school is 16 teachers short, with eight of them having fled recently after colleagues were murdered at a border school not far from here. In the teacher's absence, students have been studying many subjects on their own, a worrying situation for Mohammed Shukri, who is preparing to sit his university entry exams towards the end of the year. Very worried, very worried, because at the end of the examination, we are competing with the other Kenyans across the country who will be doing the same exams with us. Many schools around here are struggling to fill the gap. Available teachers have had to take double shifts with some schools hiring temporary staff on contract. But even then, it is not enough. The teacher exodus started back in 2015 sparked by the killing of over 140 students in Garissa University. The massacre created a sense of fear and insecurity among non-Muslim students and staff in northern Kenya. Many chose to leave. They had been trickling back over the years, but the recent killing of three teachers near the Somalia border instilled fresh fears in this corner of Kenya. I am now walking inside Wajir High School's computer lab. It's fully equipped with 35 computers, but nearly all of them are covered with brown clothing. They're also gathering a lot of dust. This place is very stuffy, and that's because the last time they had a computer lesson here was nearly three years ago. Their last computer teacher left back in 2015, and since then, he has not been replaced. In the neighboring Wajir Girls High, the students sing happily on the barren assembly ground. Seven teachers left this school in the latest exodus and Principal Amaro Silvano believes the lack of teachers could exacerbate an already challenging environment for girls in the region. In this part of, of the country, we have issues of early marriages. So if a parent out there knows that there are no teachers in school, so what happens? That next thing they think about is to marry off their daughters. So it's a trying moment. In fact, most of us, some of us, most of us teachers, the head especially, we are worried whether next time when things go back to normal, see whether we'll have all our students back in school. This influx of teachers, sometimes when you go back to those literary books that you may have... Since February, the Teacher Service Commission has granted over 50 requests for teachers wishing to leave the area. Despite vocal protests from locals and community leaders, the Commission has declined to stop the transfers. Its chairperson, Nancy Masharia, defended her decision before a parliamentary inquiry. We took away the Wajia teachers, but we have also done the same in other areas where our teachers faced adversity. But after the adversity goes, then we also get back teachers to teach. 
and I think we should be understood as an employer because we, we can't always have our teachers complaining that we always ask them to work or to perform or to deliver, but when they have a problem, then we look the other way. The people of Wajir say every Kenyan is welcome here, regardless of religion or ethnicity. But the persistent threat from Al-Shabaab means more and more teachers are choosing to stay away, and it is the students who are paying the price. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa giving you an African perspective. It is 17.18 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Now, fears over attacks on teachers in northern Kenya is threatening to disrupt education. Dozens of teachers are seeking to be transferred back to their rural areas following the killing of three teachers in February, allegedly by the extremist group Al-Shabaab. The fleeing teachers claim that their colleagues were killed on the basis of their faith, but the problem has been steadily growing for the past three years. The BBC's Ferdinand Omondi visited Wajir, the town a town to find out the uncertainty and how it's affected learning a curious little bird peeps through a classroom window as form three students sit their end of term exams but for most of this term here in wajir high school hardly any teaching has taken place and the noises in the distance are other students lazing about on the yard the school is 16 teachers short with eight of them having fled recently after colleagues were murdered at a border school not far from here. In the teacher's absence, students have been studying many subjects on their own, 
a worrying situation for Mohamed Shukri, who is preparing to sit his university entry exams towards the end of the year. Very worried, very worried, because at the end of the examination, we are competing with the other Kenyans across the country who will be doing the same exams with us. Many schools around here are struggling to fill the gap. Available teachers have had to take double shifts, with some schools hiring temporary staff on contract. But even then, it is not enough. The teacher exodus started back in 2015, sparked by the killing of over 140 students in Garissa University. The massacre created a sense of fear and insecurity among non-Muslim students and staff in northern Kenya. Many chose to leave. They had been trickling back over the years, but the recent killing of three teachers near the Somalia border instilled fresh fears in this corner of Kenya. I am now walking inside Wajir High School's computer lab. It's fully equipped with 35 computers, but nearly all of them are covered with brown clothing. They're also gathering a lot of dust. This place is very stuffy, and that's because the last time they had a computer lesson here was nearly three years ago. Their last computer teacher left back in 2015, and since then, he has not been replaced. In the neighboring Wajir Girls High, the students sing happily on the barren assembly ground. Seven teachers left this school in the latest exodus, and Principal Amaro Silvano believes the lack of teachers could exacerbate an already challenging environment for girls in the region. In this part of, of the country, we have issues of early marriages. So if a parent out there knows that there are no teachers in school, so what happens? That next thing they think about is to marry off their daughters. So it's a trying moment. In fact, most of us, some of us, most of us teachers, the head especially, we are worried whether next time when things go back to normal, see whether we'll have all our students back in school. This influx of teachers since February, the Teacher Service Commission has granted over 50 requests for teachers wishing to leave the area. Despite vocal protests from locals and community leaders, the Commission has declined to stop the transfers. Its chairperson, Nancy Masharia, defended her decision before a parliamentary inquiry. We took away the Wajia teachers, but we have also done the same in other areas where our teachers faced adversity. But after the adversity goes, then we also get back teachers to teach. And I think we should be understood as an employer because we, we can't always have our teachers complaining that we always ask them to work or to perform or to deliver, but when they have a problem, then we look the other way. The people of Wajir say every Kenyan is welcome here, regardless of religion or ethnicity. But the persistent threat from Al-Shabaab means more and more teachers are choosing to stay away, and it is the students who are paying the price. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English. Giving you an African perspective. 
Hi, my name is Tandalunian Zovo, and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happened now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following time, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is 1725 Central African time. Let's go to Ethiopia now, where the new prime minister has named a 29-strong cabinet that includes 10 new members. Abi Ahmed, who was appointed by Ethiopia's ruling coalition last month, made the announcement on state TV. Since 2015, hundreds have died in violence triggered by demonstrations over land rights in the East African country's Oromia region. The protests have since broadened into rallies over political rights. Our correspondent in Ethiopia, Kaleto Andre has this one. He has uh, today uh, appeared in Parliament after officially after being sworn in. It was his first time to, uh, to appear in Parliament, and he went to request the Parliament to approve a cabinet of of uh, 16 people that uh, 16 names that he put forward to the Parliament. Now, um, amongst the 16, uh, 16 uh, names that he put forward, he reshuffled six ministries and uh, appointed 10 new ministers. And some of the the key ministries that have really been affected by the reshuffle, especially, is the Ministry of Defence, where we had a Defence Minister who had been in power for, who had been in office, sorry, for 10 years. He has been ousted and instead they have put, uh, replaced him with the, I mean, the, the person who was the Minister for Mines and uh, Petroleum. We have also seen a reshuffle in the Ministry of Communication where uh, the Minister of Government and Communication Affairs, which is responsible for a lot of the content that comes out as far as government is concerned through the media. We have seen him appointing, uh, reshuffling that and putting uh, the then Minister for the former minister for transport is now the minister for communication, and the current the person who was the minister for communication has been sent to the regional government to head an I mean a communication bureau there. Another ministry that has been affected is the ministry of agriculture, where he has merged. Before there were two ministries under this: there was the ministry of agriculture, then there was another ministry of livestock and fisheries. He has merged this into one and uh, uh, given that to uh, a new person. And also amongst the key issues, I mean amongst the key key uh, sectors that have been affected is the customs and revenue. The Director General of Customs and Revenue has been, uh, has been uh, I mean, ousted and uh, another person has been replaced in that uh, position. And also, the, the, I mean, the, 
the official in charge of public enterprises that really mans the lot. I mean, a lot of the uh, premises and assets of the government. We've seen a reshuffle there, and he has put in a new person. These are the key, key, key ministries that were affected. Now, I suppose Coletta, uh, the new cabinet, has uh, the full backing of uh, Parliament. But uh, one of the key positions uh, is uh, that of uh, the Speaker. There were talks uh, that the current Speaker Abadula uh, Gemeda would be replaced. What, what do we know about the new Speaker? Uh, at the moment, we, uh, we're still waiting for more information about the new Speaker. But for the outgoing Speaker, we know that he tried. He attempted to resign in 2017. So he has been serving since 2017 after the Parliament refused his resignation and asked him to, to serve further. He has been serving under what some people have said uh, just for the sake of serving. So if we get a new Speaker, we're just waiting for the details of that from the Parliament uh, media. Once we get that, uh, those details, then the new uh, Speaker will be tasked with a lot of, uh, with a lot of, uh, of responsibilities because he's looking at, at a Parliament that is not as united, if, you, if, you, if, you, if I would use that word, as was the case many years ago. We've got a Parliament that now has uh, ministers with them, members within it that speak against some of the government policies, speak out and say we need a change, we need reforms. So once we get the new details of the new uh, of the new uh, speaker, we're going to share that with uh, with the listeners too. But at the moment, what we have is uh, the parliament looking forward, uh, kind of speculating who is going to take over uh, Mr. Abadullah's post. And uh, probably people are going to wonder, I mean, uh, people are wondering, what else will Mr. Abadullah do? Will he go back to his regional government and serve there? Now, parliament was also expected to approve the draft bill prepared uh, to reform the structure, uh, power and duties of executive bodies. What is the situation with regards to this, Coletta? Yes, that is still under discussion. The Parliament is uh, because it's meeting the whole of today, is expected to have that as part of the agenda. Once it has approved, the, now that it has approved the ministers, uh, new ministers, and uh, in the course of the day it's going to get a new speaker, and that issue of uh, reforming the executive body powers is going to be a big issue. A very big issue, because uh, uh, my brother, we're dealing with a, with a country where the Parliament is used to usurping power and uh, and kind of dictating, uh, the executive is used to dictating on other agencies as far as the judiciary and the others are concerned. So trying to accept these powers, trying to reduce some of their powers by reforming, because reforms means changing the powers of, I mean, the responsibilities of some of the executive, probably toning down on some of it and uh, uh, restructuring all that. So it's going to be a heated debate. That's what we're expecting. But with the fact that although the, the parliament is full of the ruling party coalition, we still have people who have spoken up and said we, have, we want reforms. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion and probably probably what uh, Dr. Abi wants to be put forward as a more reformed executive is something that we're yet to see. That's Coletta Wanjoy, who is our correspondent in Ethiopia. She was in conversation there with my colleague Kumbero Mujarere. It is now time for your news headlines. Yes, Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, South Africa uh, scores of foreign nationals in South Africa's northwest province capital, Mahiking, and surrounding areas have gathered at a local police station seeking for refuge. Scores of both local and foreign national shops have been looted as violent protests continue to spread in the province. Still in South Africa, EFF Chief Whip and the party's deputy leader, Floyd Chibambu, has described a civil rights group Afroforum's bid to pursue private prosecution against leader Julian 
Julius Malema as a nonsensical attempt to stop the political voice of the EFF. And finally, Guinea-Bissau's parliament has met for the first time in nearly two years after the appointment of a consensus prime minister to end a dragging political crisis. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 17.32 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi. You can follow the conversation on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. Engage us there. And you can also update us about what's happening in your part of the African continent. Now, nutrition experts meeting in Nairobi, Kenya, say there's a need to tackle all forms of malnutrition on the continent in order to achieve universal health coverage and the sustainable development goals by 2030. And uh, nutrition, obesity and diet-related non-communicable diseases are leading to catastrophic costs to individuals, communities and national healthcare systems in Africa. Every year it's estimated that 11 million Africans fall into poverty due to high out-of-pocket payments for healthcare. To shed some light on the issue, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Adelaide Onyango who is the regional advisor for nutrition at the World Health Organization. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello. Thank you. Adelaide, if you can maybe start by giving us an overview of the meeting that's taking place in Nairobi. Yes, we have had a meeting in Nairobi uh, for nutrition focal points working for the the World Health uh, Organization uh, country offices. And um, the idea was for us to come to speed with uh, what what is happening in their countries, in the African region, on the nutrition challenges, and uh, uh, to look at how do we support countries to address these uh, specific challenges. Uh, this meeting has just ended. We had the participation of uh, 18 countries, and uh, looking at what are the challenges today in the decade of action on nutrition as we look at universal health coverage, how can we play our part in making that uh, vision come to a reality of making sure that we can actually for the African region deliver on health and well, well-being because this, uh, the final analysis, is what we're trying to achieve in the uh, sustainable development goal of health and well-being for all, but it's very closely linked with the end to hunger and malnutrition. In fact, we want to uh, eliminate malnutrition in all its forms as part of that same uh, sustainable development agenda. What are the challenges in Africa? Well, the challenges in Africa are are two-sided. We have 
what is linked with poverty and disease and uh, lack of the means to meet the minimum uh, requirements for adequate food and a a quality diet that would support uh, growth, development, prevention of diseases, infectious diseases especially. At the same time, so that is pushing upward the problems of uh, underweight, stunting, uh, wasting, and very in the short term, death of especially young and uh, uh, vulnerable populations. On the other hand, we have a growing uh, burden of obesity and overweight that are linked to changes in our food consumption habits. We are moving now systematically towards a greater consumption of processed foods which contain uh, lots of uh, uh, sugars, salt, trans fats, and are rather less rich in nutrients. So as a result of that, we have micronutrient deficiencies like uh, linked with anemia, linked with uh, um, performance at work, because that is that is part of what uh, micronutrients or, or my, micro, uh, minerals and vitamins do for the body. And at the same time, you have an excess of weight that is driving up the burden of diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and uh, hypertension because of, of, of salt consumption and other related factors, sometimes of cancer because of, of the processed foods, the, 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 the treated, the, 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 the meats that we eat, the processed meats that we eat that, you know, are driving up the cancer burden on our continent. So this both undernutrition and uh, overweight obesity as our challenges. Mm. Um, and can those foods be avoided? Yes, they can be avoided. It is possible we are a, a continent that is known to be very, uh, we are producers of food. In fact, the agriculture pushes, is, is the bedrock of our, our, main, our, of, uh, our economy. And part of that agricultural production should include the consumption of foods that are, we don't have to process the foods that, 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 that we consume. We can eat fruits and vegetables in many, many countries that can still produce those, we should be eating fruits and vegetables. They, we can avoid eating the, the over-dependence, let's say, on processed foods and look more, go back to the root of the um, grains and cereals that we used to eat that are not processed, that are closer to uh, their natural state because then we don't extract all the essential nutrients. So it is possible to actually consume uh, uh, what we might we might call loosely natural food. Mm. Um, uh, but you also mentioned an an issue of uh, poverty as well. Um, and and Africa is also dealing with issues um, of people who get displaced um, uh, quite often. Um, it is a bit difficult for those people to grow their own foods, is it not? It is it is very difficult, of course, and that is why every means possible to uh, prevent the crisis, the problems that lead to displacement, to people moving from their homes and uh, living in very, very precarious conditions needs to be, uh, need, need, that needs to be addressed. But then, in the absence of that, and even in, the, in that situation, when we look at relief food, for example, if we look beyond just satisfying hunger, relief food 
and, and, and relief supplies need to take into account the fact that these people's nutritional needs do not change just because they're displaced. So when we look at the package of the relief basket, how about investing something in making those uh, foods have some more variety, have some more uh, of, of the grains, have some more of the, the beans and pulses, have some more of uh, nutrients, that I mean foods that are going to do more than just satisfy the hunger. Mm. Um, and uh, obviously there are also situations where um, people are becoming more upwardly mobile in certain in certain regions and therefore fast food yeah. becomes the norm. Um, but can you then make um, a fast food outlet sell food that is more nutritious? As you say, people need to consume more of that. I think so, because in fact what can happen is for the policies that govern what is sold the quality of food that is sold even in those kinds of outlets should make it possible for uh, vendors to improve the quality of the foods that they serve. Also, to promote, and in some countries, the subsidies to uh, healthier options of food are actually what has helped the population re-embrace the consumption of uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. So if you tax, for example, sugar-sweetened beverages that are sold in many of those outlets, you make it less attractive for people to consume them. If you uh, put caps on the, the marketing, the promotion and sales at the promotion of foods that contain, for example, trans fat, which is what we have in a lot of our pastries, then you are also discouraging the consumption of foods that are driving up some of those uh, non-communicable diseases. If you, uh, if, if legislation obliges the producers of food, the manufacturers of food rather, to indicate what is in that food so that people know that when you take a, 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 a kind of ketchup and you add it to your food, you're adding, yes, some tomato paste, but you're also adding quite a substantial amount of sugar in that, in that ketchup. If you're going to eat uh, bread, that there's quite, there's quite a lot of salt in that bread. How about a reformulation so that people don't have to be consuming as much? So it's a, it's, it's a policy question of governments actually putting their foot down and making it obligatory for food manufacturers to present better quality food, to present a reformulation of food so that people don't have to be, uh, don't have, to be uh, have the choice of foods that are not the quality that would sustain health, that would prevent the non-communicable diseases that we're very concerned about. Because these are very costly. Over to you, uh, Fumele. South Africa recently introduced a sugar tax. Would you say that's the way to go then? I think it is the way to go because in other countries like Mexico where the sugar taxes have been introduced, it has shown that there is a reduced consumption of, of the sugary beverages it reduces the consumption and therefore the uh, consequences related to that, like the, the, uh, the rate of, of uh, obesity in the population can be significantly reduced by the, the reduced consumption of sugar tax. So it is the way to go and it cannot stop at that because it's not, it should not be seen as a punitive measure. It should be seen as an environment that should enable and encourage the consumption of healthier options of food, so the consumption of fruits, the consumption of fresh vegetables, the consumption of uh, 
you know, let's say if, you, if you're going to tax uh, white bread in preference to uh, whole, whole wheat bread, for example. Mm. Um, once you guys are done at your conference in Nairobi, what are you hoping to um, then achieve? Are the resolutions that get taken? What's to happen? Well, this was this was a, a, a meeting, in fact, a training of WHO staff. We do not we do not go and change the policies, but we are better equipped to advise government on where we need to put measures in place that are going to uh, promote the consumption of healthier diets to reduce the marketing of foods that are driving up uh, nutritional problems and to uh, put in place also uh, policies or uh, packages of information that would help the population to understand better what it is that they are consuming. So, for example, just making it possible for people to see, to look at a food product and realize if you need to limit if you already know, for example, that you have a, a, a raised blood pressure, you need to be able to look at a product and say, mm. this one, there's a warning on it, this front of pack labeling, mm-hmm. you don't even need to be literate, that it has the labels that people will understand, this one says it is high in salt, therefore if yes. you need to limit your salt consumption, you should not, you should not go that direction, you should limit the consumption of that food. Right. This is a food that does not contain any added sugar. This is a food that does not contain any trans fat. Or this is a food that does contain trans fat, so that if you're informed uh-huh. about it, you may say, I'm going to limit the consumption of that. So it, it actually begins with very simple measures of just providing the information. And, and saying, knowing how to read the labels properly. Exactly. So All then right. we help, we work with the government to help educate the population on reading those labels. All right. And if the literacy level is, is low, to help to put other ways of labeling that help a population read, even if Adelaide. they do not know, if they're not literate, All right. because of what is called the front of pack labeling. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining us, Adelaide. Thank you. Thank All you for right. having me. All right. Dr. Adelaide Onyango is Regional Advisor for Nutrition at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. It's now time for your economics. Here's Wissani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. We'll start with the IMF News, which has called on governments to avoid harming trade and investment, which describes as uh, the key drivers of the global economic recovery. This comes amid concerns that escalating trade tensions between the U.S. and China could reverberate through the world. See economy and the IMF and the World Bank are meeting for the spring summit in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Finance Minister Ntlantlanen is leading the South African delegation. IMF Chief Christine Lagarde has urged the U.S. and China to resolve their disputes through dialogue. Countries, in our view, should work together to resolve disagreements without using exceptional measures. Uh, We at the IMF are supporting our 189 members through analysis, advice, and also by offering a platform for dialogue and better cooperation. My suspicion is that there will be many bilateral discussions to be had between the various parties involved. And I would not limit the discussions between China and the US. All partners uh, have to talk to each other.
Investment and trade are two key engines that are finally picking up. We don't want to damage that. And South Africa's APSA has distanced itself from compiling or reviewing the financial statements of Steinhoff International. The bank says it was the sponsor for the retailer's Johannesburg Stock Exchange transaction. This comes after media reports that Dutch Investors Association VEB have launched a class action against Steinhoff in the Netherlands for losses suffered by its shareholders in 2015 for share sale. Kanisi Lemanyoni has more. VEB says it has given three banks, APSA, Barclays, PLC and Commerce Bank AG, notice of its plan to file the lawsuit over misleading prospectors. VEB alleges that the banks are liable for damages incurred by Steinhoff shareholders because of their role in the listing of Steinhoff on the Frankfurt and JSE in November 2015 as part of its creation of a holding company in Amsterdam. The banks all provided services to Steinhoff when it was producing two prospectuses in 2015 that preceded its listing in Frankfurt. In a statement, the bank says its role was limited to ensuring that the JSE's listing rules were complied with by Steinhoff SA. It says its mandate specifically did not include the compilation or review of the financial statements of Steinhoff South Africa or any other Steinhoff company. Kanyisile Manyoni, SABC, Johannesburg. And South African Labour Union Solidarity says there's huge financial mismanagement at arms manufacturer Dinao. Solidarity has released a report revealing that uh, the company's top management has received salary increases of up to 60% and 100% performance-based bonuses, while it did not have the necessary funds to pay employees their full salaries in December last year. Solidarity CEO Dirk Herman. It was quite a long process to compile this specific document, a process that lasts for over a year. And the reason for that is because we've conducted interviews with several um, Daniel employees, several people from top management and, um, or senior management, that we also can reveal today that the Northwest Premier's brother was on the board of Daniel when this specific uh, bursary was awarded. The Denial dossier must be regarded as part of the bigger campaign of solidarity against tax looting. And South African retailer Pick and Pay has posted 7.1% rise in full year earnings. This as the grosser cut costs and increased productivity in store operations. Pick and Pay says headline earnings per share, which is the mostly wide, widely used profit measure in South Africa that excludes some once-off items, has rose to two US dollars one cents in the year to end February from one dollar nine cents a year earlier. Financial indicators say uh, the dollar is at uh, 9.45 Botswana Pula, 9.5 Zambian Kwacha. BRICS currencies, the dollar is at uh, 3.39 Brazilian Real at 61.31 Russian ruble in, and, and at 65.61 Indian rupee at 62.7 Chinese yuan and 11.96 South African rands. Also trading at 69 pence to the British pound and 80 cents against the euro. Commodities gold $1,352, platinum $943 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $73.85 per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now.
Thank you very much, Usani. Sports News Now. Here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with rugby news, Warren Whiteley's visit to the orthopedic surgeon has not given the Lions the good news that um, they had hoped for. Originally cleared to go on a four-match Australia um, Australasian tour after recovering from a knee injury he picked up against the Blues earlier in the season, Whiteley was then withdrawn from the squad on Tuesday morning after re-injuring the same knee. Now, the Lions confirmed on Wednesday that their skipper would be visiting an orthopedic surgeon and that if the scan suggested that the injury was not serious, he would join up with the squad in Australia as soon as possible. That, though, was not the case in a statement released earlier today by the Lions. Warren Whiteley has not been medically cleared by the Lions rugby company medical team and will not join the Lions on tour until he is medically cleared. The length of the injury layoff is still unknown, but the signs are not good. Meanwhile, in Whiteley's absence, Franco Mostard will continue to captain the side. Ethiopia's Trinidad Dababa hopes to tip the scales against Kenyan defending champion Mary Katani in Sunday's London Marathon. The two runners are ultimate favourites out of an elite field of 17. Our correspondent Geshom Yati reports from London. Speaking on Wednesday's press conference, Trinidad Dababa was bold and thought nothing other than a big win. The celebrated track athlete over 5,000 and 10,000 metres finished second 56 seconds behind Mary Keitani in last year's race and went a step further to win the Chicago Marathon in the USA later in the year. Dibaba admitted she is new into marathon running, but she has got what it takes to be a champion. The diminutive Keitani hit back by telling the challengers she will attempt to break the course record held by British athlete Paula Radcliffe and register a fourth straight victory in the London Marathon. But firstly, Keitani appreciated to have been invited by the organizers to defend her title. The strong lineup of elite athletes include two other Kenyans, fourth finisher last year Vivian Chariot, Gladys Gerono making her debut in London, Rose Chelimo, a former Kenyan running for Bahrain, Ethiopian's 2015 champion Tikisti Tufa, Mari Dibaba and Tadelcha Bekele. On to tennis news, Novak Djokovic has been knocked out of the Monte Carlo Masters by an inspired Dominic Thiem in the third round with the Austrian fifth seed progressing to a possible quarterfinal clash with Rafael Nadal. Now, Thiem, a two-time French Open semi-finalist, was the better player for much of the match and won 7-6-6-2-6-3 despite a battling effort from Djokovic. The 12-time Grand Slam champion has still not reached a quarterfinal since Wimbledon last July after struggling with an elbow injury. Meanwhile, third seed Alexander Zverev came through a three-set tussle with fellow German Jean Lennart Struff to set up a possible Monte Carlo Masters quarterfinal clash with brother Mishka Zverev. The 20-year-old who won two Masters titles last season became frustrated in the second set but came through that tie 6-4-4-6-6-4 and will play either his older brother Mishka or Richard Gasket in the last form. Meanwhile, Canadian Melios Ranyoch pulled out of the Monte Carlo Masters before his third round match against Marin Klilic earlier today with a right knee injury. Those are sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Let us recap our top stories. Scores of foreign nationals seek refuge following violent demonstrations in Mahikeng. South African lobby group Afri Forum intends to privately prosecute EFF leader Julius Malima and Zimbabwe's government has started rehiring nurses after it sacked more than 10,000 of them in sports. Springbok captain suffers a fresh injury blow. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Catherine Malika and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thanks for listening. You can send us your emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za info at channelafrica.co.za and SMS it is plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. You can also tweet us. We are on channel Africa one. We leave you with uh, Sona Shobate with Gambia.